You're listening to a Dharma talk from Sunday Morning Zen, a program of the Zen Life and Meditation Center of Chicago. To a large extent, this work is not my own. You know, it, arose, it kind of arose organically as part of the conversations that we had as a group. And um, we, we had a lot of those in the Facebook community, but we also uh, meet weekly uh, to discuss our practice and what's coming up for us. And a lot of it, uh, a lot of the content came up through that as well. So uh, thanks to everybody who is making commitments to great success and for them helping me with this talk during a time when I'm a little bit pressed for, uh, <laughs> for attention and time. So um, I want to particularly call out um, Mark Galula, uh, my partner in crime, who helps moderate the Facebook group and uh, who assists in kind of guiding some of the curriculum we address during uh, commit to sit, so it's much appreciated there, as well as uh, Christian Solorzano, um, who invests a lot of time and effort in making us, uh, making us, in presenting a face to the world in a way that uh, that makes us just a little bit uh, more beautiful. So thanks to both of you, as well as the entire commit to sit community, um, for making it possible. Um, so with that being said, I'm going to hope for an indulgence here for a brief intermission. Um, so a lot has happened for me personally, and I know there's been such an outpouring of love and support. I just wanted to take a moment to bring you all up to speed on what happened or, and what's happening or what's coming up, um, because I feel like, um, I feel like we're family in this and that, uh, a lot of you are interested in knowing more about it. So as a lot of you know, uh, on the 11th of August, um, it was just a normal day. We, uh, Vanessa and I had a pretty packed agenda for that day, and I uh, was trying to fit everything in. I was actually out for a bike ride in the morning, working on um, the uh, Sin Sing Ming um, uh, commentary that we're, or study group that we're doing right now in, in Commit to Sit. Um, and I got a call from Vanessa, and she said, uh, they're, they're taking me in for tests. And uh, she wasn't due for another couple of months, so it wasn't particularly alarming. Um, but, uh, you know, I was still a couple miles from home, and so I, I finished off um, to get home and, and spoke with Roshi, and Roshi and Sensei were able to take care of some things for me that I had going on that afternoon, and I headed over to the, uh, the doctor. And I headed over there and uh, was kind of greeted by a surprise. They had Vanessa hooked up to quite a few machines at the time, and it was reading back uh, her blood pressure numbers, which were in excess of 190 over 110 at the time. And uh, I remember thinking there had to have been a kink in the line because <laughs> those just aren't numbers that you would expect um, from her. And so um, after a few minutes, it, it became pretty clear that she had a condition called preeclampsia and was experiencing severe high blood pressure um, as a result of her pregnancy. Um, and it's just, it's a random occurrence. It shows up at about one in eight to one in 10 pregnancies. Um, so initially they're gonna do a C-section uh, right there on the spot, they were pretty much ready. Uh, but one of the doctors there graciously intervened and said, look, I think there's some more things that we can try. Um, and uh, started a, a, a more aggressive course of blood pressure medication. So I know Sensei at this time reached out to all of you and asked for your prayers and well wishes and I can tell you um, they were appreciated and they and, uh, they were felt and 
The great news is um, they were able to spend a couple of days onboarding a lot of steroids to kind of rapidly help um, David uh, get ready for what could be um, an early entry at that point. Um, this, this continued on through the 12th. Um, you know, the blood pressure medicines they were giving her were mildly effective, um, but uh, her blood pressures were fighting against them and coming up. And um, at that point, it was just a matter of holding on as long as we could. Um, at this stage of pregnancy, when you're you know, seven, months, seven months developed, every day counts. Um, he's gaining weight and developing every day, so um, they were trying to extend it. Um, but all that came to a hit on the 13th. Um, and around 7.30 p.m., um, you know, the, uh, they decided that it was time. The blood pressure was coming back up. So as you can see, we all gowned up and got ready um, to go in to meet David. And uh, <laughs> the, uh, the anesthesiologist had a hard time um, with a spinal tap, which is required to um, prevent her from having pain during the surgery. And so they called in a last-minute decision to basically put her under general anesthetic. So neither Vanessa nor I was present, actually. We thought we were, we were both going to be awake and lucid. We were there for the uh, for the delivery. Um, and after she came out, it took them quite a bit of time to get her pain under control. But uh, all this is being said to let you know uh, that, uh, as you already know, that uh, David was born at about 7.30. Um, that that uh, that night, uh, the middle picture there is this little blood pressure cuff. Um, it was a thing uh, to behold. I'll decide to behold. I'll tell you, it was um, such a little guy. He was born at three pounds. I think it's three pounds, uh, 2.1 ounces. So tiny guy, 15 and a half inches long. And uh, it was um, it was a little bit uh, uh, scary at first, but uh, you know, he let out quite a yell and, uh, you know, immediately began fighting. And so, um, you know, we were very fortunate in that. We, we also credit a lot of the love and support we were getting from all of them. So basically for that next day, I spent most of my time going back and forth between that floor and, and Vanessa, who was up on the floor above it. She, she didn't get to go see him um, Thursday uh, until about Friday afternoon when Vanessa got in. And um, you know, had some bonding time with baby. So he's on a lot of machines to regulate breathing, to regulate his temperature. Um, he was being fed intravenously through a tube that was inserted into his umbilical cord or the stump of him, but his umbilical cord. They monitored him very closely. And this was kind of life for him for probably the first, I would say, five to six days. Um, and we were um, uh, very heartened by his response. The doctors there were spectacular, but even more, we were getting a lot of letters from the Sangha for people who they who themselves had experienced um, premature births, and um, it was very heartening. It kind of reassured us that everything was going to be okay, and I think that that positive energy helped us through for that first several days when things were tough. Um, but um, we had a Valakitas far there, as you can see in the incubator, uh, lending a hand. Um, and started just the normal process of, of what you would do to parents. You know, Vanessa got to hold them. Um, it's a little bit of an ordeal with all the wires and the ventilator and everything else, but uh, we were able to make it happen. Uh, the middle picture is Vanessa changing diapers. And uh, Vanessa's been 
so um, fortunate um, in her milk production that we're actually donating some of it because she produces it at a rate about four times more than the baby can take it in at this point. Uh, but he's growing rapidly, and um, and things have been getting things have been getting better day by day. So he's now, um, although you can see, he started off uh, week two with a lot of equipment. Um, I was able to get in on the act as he got a little more stable, um, and they started weaning down the oxygen um, that he was on, and he started breathing on his own, which was great. Um, and then uh, now he's actually off of oxygen. He's off of uh, IV feeding. He's being fed through a nasogastric tube that's inserted in his nostril. And he's awake and alert. So he's making a lot of progress very, very fast. And um, I, I just want to tell everyone, it's, it's so wonderful not to be in this alone. Um, it's so great um, that uh, for all the welcome advice that we've received and the well wishes, as well as the financial gift everyone gave, we can't tell you how much we appreciate um, being a part of this family. Uh, it's been just a great outpouring of love, and we really can't wait um, for him to come home and for you to meet him soon. And that's looking right now like um, they generally say with premature births like this, it's gonna they're gonna stay in the hospital um, probably until their due date, which was October 16th. Um, we're heartened by his progress. Uh, there's still a long way to go, and it could he could surprise us all and come home a little bit early. Um, so we're really, uh, really fortunate and blessed to have you having still be you know, next to us in this. And uh, I wanted to make sure that everybody got an update, was able to see uh, what was going on. I've been trying to communicate with everybody. If you've sent me emails and I haven't responded, I apologize. I'm, I'm coming through them, but the outpouring of love has been just great. Thank you so much. Uh, during that time, also great news, my robes came. <laughs> So it's kind of a um, you know a reminder in that moment that uh, there was more good things on the horizon to come, and I'm really excited about um, being able to engage in, in service to the community here as a priest moving forward, uh, being a part of this wonderful saga and their growth, um, and then joining Yogetsu and Kyokazan and um, Shinko as well as Roshi and Sensei um, as, as a priest in the community. So that was my, uh, I just wanted to take a couple of moments to bring everybody up to speed because everybody's been so, uh, so interested in it. Back to our regularly scheduled program. Um, we're here to talk about the song of the Grassroot Hut. It was authored by Sekito, who lived uh, between 700 and 790 in the common era. Um, he's born in Guangdong, China and at a relatively young age became a student of the sixth patriarch, uh, Huan Yang, who is known better as the author of the Platform Sutra. Um, he studied with him until his death and then received transmission from one of his successors. And after receiving transmission, Sekiro resided uh, and taught at Nantai Temple uh, in Hunan. He lived atop a large rock. How's that for being eccentric? Hence his name, Sekido, which translates to stone. Um, Sekido is not just famous for this work. He also um, probably more, is better known for the piece we call the Sandokai, which is a staple piece that's chanted at Soto Zen centers. We recognize it inside of our liturgy as um, the identity of relative and absolute. 
Steketo had a stellar way of kind of expressing the sublime through prose. And, uh, his works are very accessible, but at the same time, um, they're deeply rich. Um, the the work that we're going to talk about today, we're doing at 10,000 feet. Um, you could very easily um, do a workshop on this uh, over a group of days not have um, plumbed all the depths that Secretary did as, as he walked through these. So just a word about the way that I was working with this. As I said, the group, uh, the group was working with me and commit to sit through, a discuss through the uh, discussion group on Facebook, and we were meeting weekly and having some additional discussions about it. And then I would spend time out um, every day working on it line by line, usually hiking or bicycling. And so as I did it, I took, I took a lot of pictures that became the foundation of some of the Facebook posts. And they're not always directly aligned to the text, but you know, I've included them today just because it kind of serves the state of mind that was present um, as, I was, as I was kind of wrestling here with Secretary through this, through this piece. Um, most of the work is based on found still life, right? So just seeing the beauty in everyday things um, without anything being added or touched. So let's just work, start off by reading the piece. It's a song of Grasher and Hermitage, and I'm reading a translation here by uh, Dan Layton and Kazuki Tanahashi. Starts off, I built a grass hut where there's nothing of value. After eating, I relax and enjoy a nap. What is completed, fresh weeds appeared. Now it's been lived in, covered by weeds. The person in the hut lives here calmly, not stuck to inside, outside, or in between. Places worldly people live, he doesn't live. Realms worldly people love, he doesn't love. Though the hut is small, it includes the entire world. In 10 feet square, an old man and woman's forms in their nature. A great vehicle bodhisattva trusts without doubt. The middling or lowly can't help wondering, will this hut perish or not? Perishable or not, the original master is present, not dwelling south or north, east or west. Firmly based on steadiness, it can't be surpassed. A shining window below the green pines, jade palaces of a million towers can't compare with it. Just sitting with head covered, all things are at rest. Thus, this mountain monk doesn't understand at all. Living here, he no longer works to get free. Who would proudly arrange seats, trying to entice guests? Turn around the light to shine within, then just return. The vast, inconceivable source can't be faced or turned away from. Meet the ancestral teachers. Be familiar with their instruction. Find grasses to build a hut and don't give up. Let hundreds of years go and relax completely. Open your hands and walk, innocent. Thousands of words, myriad interpretations are only to free you from obstructions. If you want to know the undying person in the, in the hut, don't separate from this skin bag here and now. So he starts by talking about building a grass hut where there's nothing of value. And very metaphorical. He opens us by inviting us to where he dwells. 
um, the home that's a metaphor um, for the small self, for the mind. Um, the structure he's advocating here is for the self, and rather than by building an elaborate dwelling and placing his hopes in permanence, he builds it of simple materials that are readily at hand. There's a beauty here in that the home is not for the sake of being ostentatious or being for itself, right, or in and of itself, but rather for dwelling simply and lightly, avoiding pretense. There's no, that there's no value means that there's really nothing here to cling to. Um, it's, it's nothing special. He can reorder this dwelling with ease any way he needs to, as just any calm or simple storm or strong wind can do too, right? Um, thus, it's supremely adaptable in the times of change that are sure to come, and they do come for each and every one of us. This story is about really being present with what presents itself rather than asserting our delusions. And Sekato invites us for a walk with him. After eating, I relax and enjoy a nap. There's a story about special spiritual attainment um, in Zen. Now, where one disciple's bragging about his master, the disciple of another master. And he claims his teacher is capable of all sorts of magical acts, um, like writing in the air with a brush and having characters appear on a piece of paper hundreds of feet away. And uh, he turns to the other student and says, well, what can your master do? And uh, the other disciple says, well, my master can also um, do some pretty amazing feats. When he's tired, he sleeps, and when he's hungry, he eats. And it's just such a wonderful reminder that, um, you know, in building this dwelling or the small self, we're doing it only um, to, to, towards the end of, of meeting or vow or living or vow. Um, having it preside in simplicity, we, prefer, we, we then preside in simplicity with what presents itself outwardly. And as we mentioned, that's nothing special. Um, but this is the key to be, to actually be, to fulfillment, right? It's a beautiful and natural way of being in some perfect balance. You add nothing and you want nothing. As is often want to happen, when it was completed, fresh weeds appeared. And uh, weeding is a great metaphor and it's used a lot in some practice, uh, metaphorically. Uh, because, you know, thoughts a lot of times crop up like weeds. Um, when we teach new students meditation, um, they're often one of the first things they say is they tell me how challenging it is not to get distracted by their thoughts. And there's an initial belief that somehow um, their mind needs to be blank if they're going to get it right. Um, but the truth is that every abode um, where the garden brings forth weeds, the, really only, the only difference is the number of variety of them, right? What kind of different species could expect? Different conditions um, bring forth different weeds. And when these weeds appear, well, we need to be with them. Um, we need to recognize them as a, you know, the fruit of the conditions that are present. We then decide which ones we want to water and nourish and mindfully cultivate. And sometimes we may want to uproot some. Um, but that's a great exercise in experiencing interdependence. We can see how things in our present moment um, kind of take root and entwine themselves. But over time, we have a beautiful garden that unfolds of its own volition. Um, 
There are wonderful surprises. We can also have some pretty painful letdowns. But uh, one thing we can be sure of is there are going to be a lot of weeds in great abundance. So we can just go on gardening. And soon, um, it's been lived in and covered in weeds. So, you know, the hut had just been completed when the first fresh weeds emerged. Now the hermitage has been covered by weeds and life has a way of, of doing this. As we just talked about, weeds spring forth in a fertile ground according to the conditions that are set. And the awakened mind is not devoid of weeds. Um, we simply work with them differently. Our bodhisattva vow is a commitment to dwell with all kinds of weeds, um, all things that are coming up in present, all kinds of suffering. And um, we bear witness to this bountiful harvest of weeds every day when we live in the current moment. So the enlightened mind, in a way, is a field full of them, although they're transcended and not labeled. The object is not to ban the weeds. It's to learn how to be with them and to work with them for the good of all suffering sentient beings, to experience them directly with equanimity, and just continue cultivating mindfully. And thus, the person in the hut lives here calmly, He's not stuck to inside or outside or in between. Sekito shifted here from the first person, where he said, I built a grass hut, to the third person, where he's referring to the person in the hut. And this, is, this transformation happened in very few lines since we've, we've begun the, the poem. Dwelling in a simple abode among the many weeds, um, he's abandoned picking and choosing in favor of quiet abiding and bearing witness. It's natural for a bodhisattva, as a product of their vow, to put aside the fictitious distinction between self and others. This is a thorough letting go of self, as it was a delusion from the outset. It's really used skillfully um, to carry our way through lives and leave the smallest footprint possible while we're manifesting true compassion. As the self drops away, all else drops away as well, exposing emptiness. And in that place, there's no inside or outside or in between to cling to. We have direct experience. We eat when we're hungry. We nap after meals. We clothe the poor and we feed the sick. And here there's nothing to be troubled about. Just live calmly with what comes up. Places worldly people live, he doesn't live. This is an interesting distinction that he's making here um, as a, for the point of illustration, right? Worldly people versus the grass hut dweller. Um, the, having allowed the weeds to be present and dwelling with them, the Hermitage House is someone who's chosen a path of calm abiding and distinctions here are transcendent. He's drawing a contrast to what he's calling worldly people. You know, worldly people who, um, by picking and choosing, create good and bad, self and other, even heaven and hell. And of course, we both contain um, our worldly and bodhisattva selves. But um, when we're driven by need to exalt the small self, we wind up willfully abdicating our true nature. 
Second over here is not trying to pass judgment. Under the grass roof hut, there's really no self to contain and no other place to go. This is an attempt to light a, ga- uh, light a lantern to guide our steps, to hold ourselves loosely, um, and, and to keep it together by vow, um, by advocating a skillful way of working on the dualistic plane uh, where we live every single day. Realms worldly people love, he doesn't love. So just a continuation of the acts of the worldly people, um, picking and choosing, creating good and bad, um, and kind of going astray or creating a narrative that requires a whole bunch of support, um, rather than just being present in the here and now. By using the term love here, Sekhodo is addressing attachment, right? Being stuck in a worldview and ordering facts and observations to support the worldview. Uh, it's a truth more often for us, it's, it's, it's true more often we'd like to admit, right? Um, this isn't the altruistic, unconditional love of the committed bodhisattva, uh, guided by the needs of the present moment. It's a way of being stuck in the desires of the small self. In the realm of the grassroots hermitage, we're present with what is. When the self drops away, the idea of how things need to be follows, and we can manifest full compassion in the present moment and being here in equanimity. And through this, though the hut is small, it includes the entire world. So we're talking about holding both sides of the coin at once, separateness and interconnectedness. And it's important to always know that both are at play and it really depends on what way you're, you're looking at the time. Um, from one perspective, second of his hermitage dweller has ordered his mind in a very simple way and bears witness to whatever comes up without picking and choosing. His heart doesn't long for the wants of the small self or work furiously to try to keep it up. Um, and he isn't really attached to appearances. On the other hand, there's a recognition that everything is interconnected and utterly devoid of self-existence. And so in this place, a single blade of grass in the roof contains the entire universe. Everything's reflected in everything else. There's no outside, no inside, no in between. It's empty of concept, and as such, it breaks open and is bursting with round boundlessness. And Sekado's hermitage dweller moves fluidly shaking hands with the absolute relative, and he fully integrates the experience. Coming face to face with the absolute, for a lot of us, comes up somewhat early in our Zen practice. But the long work, the long path for us, is integrating that experience into our lives moving forward. In 10 feet square, an old man illumines forms and nature. This is a smaller image. 10 feet square is less than most prison cells, right? I mean, it's, he's living in a very small place. But really, this is the foundation of his liberation. So in his renunciation of a rigid self, and in let it go of trying to impress his will on existence, 
uh, or a grand plan. He's gained everything. By just being present with what is and quietly abiding with it, the true nature of everything bursts forth and is manifest. This is how we actually find our original nature and our cosmic inheritance. And it's not a place where we're not, you know, uh, concerned about others. It's a place where self and others completely transcended and where compassion manif manifests perfectly. A great vehicle, bodhisattva, trusts without doubt. The tradition of Buddhism in which we practice is called a Mahayana. And that literally means um, great vehicle. And the characteristic of our practice is the bodhisattva vow. You hear it chanted after meditation frequently when we do it, right? Creations are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to transform them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to open them. The awakened way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. And in so doing, subscribing to this vow, the apex of our practice is really to devote ourselves to helping people through suffering. Um, freeing all suffering sentient beings is a tall order, and it's not something to take lightly, and it's, it's pretty audacious. Um, vowing to do so requires a big faith or trust. And it's not a term that comes up a lot in Zen practice, where sometimes I think we feel like we're, we're buckling up under our own um, you know, volition and the depth of our practice um, and, and, and intensity to make things happen. But it really requires a form of surrender um, and a trust in things as they are. And it's a special kind of leaning in that's at ease with our place in the universe. And it's hard to explain Rationally, it's beyond ordinary understanding it. But when we can obtain it, we can abandon our fear and anxiety as we don't, they don't serve our vow. And that's a constant renunciation, right? Because these things continue to crop up. Um, it's not that we don't have them, fear and anxiety. It's that we don't, um, we don't take the bait. We don't, we don't follow that part of our narrative or separate ourselves from what's present. It's only through this trust that we commit ourselves, in the end, beyond doubt, to the plight of all creations. And this is the wisdom of the Bodhisattva that transcends knowledge and manifests moment by moment as perfect compassion. This is contrasted with the middling or lowly. We can't help wondering, will this hut perish or not? So, um, you know, my best uh, understanding in looking through this is that the term middle lowly is using the, uh, some, this literature and other literature of the period to talk about someone's capacity of intellect. But it also is, is a form of wisdom, I think, as well. So rather than debate the, the kindness of doing, of how he's expressed it, we'll just read it as, or render it as, those who lack wisdom can't help wondering, or those who don't in the know, which is, by the way, every single one of us, <laughs> um, in one sense. And, you know, this hut that Sekido is referring to is of our own construction, and it's no other than the small self that we build. Um, as it's of our own devising, it's quite reasonable to wonder if it's going to perish. And uh, in a way, that's, it's likely very affirmative, right? 
on the plane of the relative, we're born, we age, and we die. And this also extends to our ideas and our concepts and constructs. Even the noblest of them is going to perish after a season. But from another perspective, there is no self. And uh, the self, along with all other concepts, is devoid of individual existence and empty. And in this way, it was never born. And then, if it's never been born, it can never die. So we, we took a walk through the Heart Sutra back in, I think, May or June, and we saw the path of the Bodhisattva cutting through delusion and leading to Prajnaparamita, which is the transcendent wisdom of emptiness that's fully available in this very present moment. And this full integration really uh, represents enlightenment. Perishable or not, the original master is present, not dwelling south or north, east or west. When we talk about emptiness, there's something added. You know, it, meaning emptiness, is really difficult to express because a very attempt of, you know, to communicate it requires breaking it into concepts, and thus it's no longer it anymore. And that's one of the great um, ironies of, of Zen, right? The, this emptiness that, we were, uh, that we're, we're talking about all the time really doesn't exist, right? Because it can't exist in and of itself. So anytime we try to cleave it or discuss it or apprehend it, it slips away. Um, so I'm in the Zen center right now. Um, right around the corner from the Founders' Altar. And, uh, you know, you're all in your homes and um, listening to the talk and, and formulating your own opinions about it. But there's something larger than those actors present. There's something that connects all of those. Um, before the revelation that we talk about, that's I and you, um, we can meet the master, the original master, and that's always present. He's always present. She's always present. And um, that's the face of our original nature. Jerry Session Wick, I think, put it really well. He said, to be truly seamless, there must be no gap. Maintain the mind of not knowing, of not grasping, because as soon as we hold on to something, there's a seam. And that, send, that seam rends the entire edifice. And that's followed by a parade of a thousand unruly sharks, disguised as delusive thoughts, entering and starting to do all of their mischief. So it's about being present with nothing added. Firmly based on steadiness, it can't be surpassed. In abiding with weeds, bearing witness to what comes up, we manifest steadiness. As our worldview isn't an image or abstraction we have to fight to keep up, we can be at ease and relax into the present moment. We ebb and flow with the tides of life rather than fighting against them. This isn't to say there are not going to be challenges <laughs> on the path. There absolutely will. Um, but without the extra complications and encumbrances that come with trying to exalt the small self, we can be here and truly experience life firsthand. It's a much lighter yoke when everything's not a threat to who we, we say or think we are in this, in, this, in this small self. 
And when you can achieve that, this way of being is actually unsurpassable. Everything is open to us. We're able to move freely and experience things as they really are. And this is the inheritance of our true nature. The poet Bayaso said, when the mind is truly at peace, wherever you are is pleasant. Whether you live in a marketplace or in a mountain hermitage. And I think for most of us on this call, uh, we spend a lot of time uh, <laughs> in the marketplace, so to speak. A shining window below the green pines, jade palaces or million towers can't compare with. So there's a beautiful contrast here. It seems like one's just as beautiful as the other, right? We have a shining window below the green pines. It conjures such a, a wonderful image, uh, nature uh, in all of its beauty and splendor. And it's very simple. There's nothing here for us to do but simply be one with it and enjoy it. It's natural, it's abiding, it's ever-changing. And it's contrasted with and compared to um, jade palaces of Vermilion Towers, which also brings to our minds, you know, eye, images of beauty as well. But these are constructs of humankind, um, and they take massive amounts of energy and toil to complete, uh, so much effort to only to build up, uh, only to have the ravages of time actually wind up destroying them, reducing them to dust. They're not abiding. It reminds me of a passage um, from the Bible, um, from my uh, Bible college days. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. It's from the book of Matthew, chapter 6. There's so little we need to do to enjoy what's before us and, and presents itself organically. And yet we feel so compelled to live in a world, often, of our own construction. Sekido is taking some time here to try to call us home into a more simpler form of existence. Just sitting with head covered, all things are at rest. Again, regularly returning to the concept of rest, repose, refuge. Um, here we're taking refuge in the simplicity of our grass religion. It's a simple rest that brings peace. We've touched on themes of emptiness during this journey. It's often tempting to believe that after coming in contact with emptiness uh, or the absolute, that enlightenment and bliss follow immediately on its hill, heels. And uh, I only wish, I only wish that were true. Um, we're moved and touched by looking or becoming face-to-face -face with, with emptiness or the absolute. Um, but then we have a very long road of integrating that understanding uh, that follows up on it. And recognizing the perfection and fullness of the present infinite moment um, as manifested in compassion, it begins really with the concept we call me, holding it very loosely and compassionately. And... Uh, and kind of soothing us so that we have the ability to, to let it go. And by doing so, we can take refuge in a much more simple hut. Um, our heads covered, our fears quelled, or at least, or at least uh, ossuaged slightly. And uh, this can give us the strength we need to deepen our practice. 
and continue to open to the interconnectedness that's our true nature. Thus, this mountain monk doesn't understand at all. Now it's amazing, you know, Zen is a tradition that extols the virtue constantly of direct experience, the finger pointing at the moon. And it's a, a huge irony that we have such a prolific pantheon of writers. <laughs> I think we're, we're, we're probably among the best, uh, the best documented um, uh, sects inside of Buddhism. Um, second over here is pointing to the practice of, of not knowing. Yeah, letting go of knowing is an extremely difficult thing to do. Um, and I know it's something that I, you know, I, I constantly struggle to work with because, um, well, because I'm in the Vajra energy family, that tends to be what I like to do. Um, but when you're able to do it, the effects are transformative and extremely rich. In truth, it doesn't take much time to consider and really rationalize this out. We know very little about what the future will hold and really very little about what the past means. Um, and in, given that context, it's surprising that we even continue to cling uh, to our desire for knowing. If we can just loosen our grip on needing to tie up our experiences in neat little packages with clear labels like past and future, we can more intimately be with the present moment in a way that brings peace and tranquility. In so doing, um, we can see every moment with boundless possibilities and a new beginning and save our life this way as it was meant to be lived. Living here, he no longer works to get free. So where do we live? It seems like an obvious question. Um, we would say, in general reply, we live in Oak Park or we live in the United States. But is that where we really abide? You know, the residency that Sekido here is advocating for and has been discussing is in this very present moment. The grass hut really isn't like a summer home or a vacation getaway. It's where we permanently abide. This is not a matter of blissing out and spending time on the cushion and allowing all of our, you know, their cares to drop away. It's about learning to live with them and integrate that experience. When we train new students in meditation, we always give them somewhere to return to. Um, generally, it's to the breath, right, or the counting of the breath. And where we're really starting to give them an anchor for is to actually return back um, to this present moment right here, right now. And this is a choice that all of us make throughout our busy day. Um, we recall ourselves and bring ourselves back to the present moment and shake off you know, the delusive thoughts and the narrative that tends to creep up when we're divorced from that. Um, if we can get there, there's a lot less striving that's required. Just, we can just be here and ease into it. Who would proudly arrange seats trying to entice guests? Second over here is a, alluding to the dance we all do when we present ourselves to the world. Traditionally in Chinese courts and temples, at the time when this was written. Um, there's a big to-do about displays of pageantry and um, that were related to, to hosting. Um, you know, to be a host was a coveted role because it was an opportunity for you to display uh, all of your wealth and all of your status. You know? And I think that 
still sounds familiar to a lot of us today, right? We all do some of this uh, or, or have done some of this or are doing some of this, right? Uh, creating some show around what we drive, you know, how we dress, the clothes we wear, even the way we talk. Um, and it's designed to exalt this small self that we've created. When it really comes down to it, what's the need for all of this? When we stop the ostentation, differences vanish and wisdom manifests in perfect compassion. There's really nothing to add that's required. Now, this isn't to suggest you're not going to clean up your house before folks come over, right? Um, we don't discard this notion of self. We mold it and adapt it so that it serves us rather than the other way around. And we understand that it's a construct and a raft rather than the basis of truth. And there's something else baked into this verse as well. In traditional Zen writings, there's a lot of times where host and guest are used as an allegory for the absolute and for the relative. The host stands for uh, the absolute or emptiness, and um, the, the, the guest um, is more of the dualistic dyads that are born of the grasping mind. You know, take a piece off and cleave all these differences that stand up against themselves. So in this sense, the question is why set up seats in the first place? Why cleave apart that interconnectedness? Just let it be and appreciate it directly. Turn around the light to shine within, then just return. Rather than setting out guests, or chairs rather for guests, Secados suggests we turn around the light to shine within and then just return. As we go about our daily business, it's easy to get stuck on the event horizon. Um, Roshi uses the, uh, the allegory of the rim, the place uh, we see as we focus outward in all directions, right? It's where our emotions live and where, where the activity happens, uh, where we perceive everything's happening. We get absorbed in those emotions and the daily drama narrative we use to weave together events uh, called living on the rim. And it's a wonderful recipe uh, for chaos and for suffering, living out there. But by turning our focus, our gaze, or the light inward towards the hub, we can see the stage of our mind where all these events are played out uh, separately. Thoughts come and go, but where do they come from and where do they go to? You know, what's really out there and in here? Seeing that the narrative we create out of disjointed events that play across our thoughts is just a story that we're weaving together, enables us to drop the fictitious elements of the plot and return to where we are right here and now. And when we can do that, we can see the interconnectedness and we can manifest compassion from this wisdom. And then we move out to the room again because the narrative is very seductive. And then we turn in the light and return. The vast, inconceivable source cannot be faced or turned away from. The fullness of this moment is really always accessible. It's, it's always right before us. The vast, inconceivable source is connected to the past, present, and future. It's all one as well as the reaches of the distant universe. Even though it's there, we can become distracted. 
What's important to remember is that it's still right before us and it can be accessed by simply returning to the present. It's as close as your next breath. It's really comforting to me, you know, in challenging times because we can often fear when we're going through life and things become challenging that we've lost our way. This is something I think that comes up a lot for all of us. And it's, it's good to know that this is really impossible. Just rest assured that the way is always as close as your next footstep or your next breath. Just come back here. Meet the ancestral teachers. Be familiar with their instruction. Buy grasses to build a hut and don't give up. Each of us every day we practice meditation in the way that we've received through instruction, right? Trods the path that our ancestors set up for us. And they did, and they wore it down pretty well. So there's a very clear path for us to follow. And in and of itself, that's a very uh, beautiful and boundless teaching. Um, a lot of you have, have decided to study with a teacher. Some of you, you work with Cohen's. Um, in this way, we can become intimate with the kind of mind-to-mind transmission that is Zen. Our image was built originally with simple materials that were readily available and close at hand. They are meant to provide us with shelter for a season. When we know that the ravages of time and tent us, not to mention simple everyday life, uh, um, will wear down and it will require building and rebuilding from time to time. You know, as we become more acquainted with our true nature, it's going to change how we live. And as it changes how we live, the structure will change. So you just keep finding grasses, picking up what's at hand, as life requires to support your practice. I remember when I was about to take the pre- precept to take Jukai, that was, I have it written on the back here, December 5th, 2010, I saw Roshi and Dakusan, and I was pretty elated. I was pretty blissed out at the time. I've been practicing a lot. And I asked him some advice, you know, how, you know, how to live my life after this extraordinary rite of passage. And uh, he was pretty banal about it. He said, um, you know, keep practicing, keep showing up, and uh, don't give up. And I remember at the time I felt a little bit let down by it um, because, again, it seemed so basic and banal. But um, it turned out to be the best guidance I've ever received along the way. Don't give up. Let hundreds of years relax, go rather, and relax completely. Each of us has a very complex relationship with time. We're, we're interconnected. With every point in space and time, we're like diamonds, all the time reflecting the entire universe. There's a temptation sometimes to carry that like a weight. You know, we worry about the future, we regret the past. We project these worries, and they're reflected right back at us. Um, and sometimes it has a way of echo chambering on us and deepening our despair and creating karmic consequences because of, because of it. But in each moment, why not just put that down, that extra part, that extra narrative down, and actually relax, be fully present in this moment, and manifest the compassion the world very badly needs right now. 
beginning with ourselves. You can't begin with ourselves. Putting this load down is really the only way to open to our true nature. Open your hands and walk, innocent. I love this as a summary on how we're to live, moment by moment. The word here used for walk is reminiscent of how to conduct oneself or to do. We conduct ourselves with open hands, grasping nothing, fully available to apply ourselves to others in need or what presents itself in need in every, every single moment. We're also very vulnerable in this state. We're not arming or protecting ourselves. We're completely open. We conduct ourselves in innocence without harming ourselves, ourselves or others. Thus, we don't incur, incur rather karmic obstructions along our path. We're able to travel in peace. This is how we make ourselves completely available to the service of the Dharma, and how we truly manifest our bodhisattva vow. Thousands of words, myriad interpretations, are only to free you from obstructions. So I love to take photographs. I'm not suggesting I'm great at it, but I love it. Um, I started when I was a teenager. I used to have a bulk film loader. I would load up black and white film and, and walk all over town taking pictures. And I spent hours in the darkroom every single day working over all that material. Um, you know, I've always, you know, my practice, although I didn't see it as a practice back then, was to kind of look at things that are generally overlooked for their own intrinsic beauty and try to capture it photographically in the moment. Occasionally, I'll use some tools after the fact to manipulate or bring out what I was seeing, but it's um, you know, just trying to make these stories come through as they're intended, and again, seeing the beauty of everything reflected in everything else. So art, I believe, to a large extent, is intended to point to something that's always available but seldom seen. And that's a lot of what this poem is, as well as all of Zen literary work. The truths they point to are freely available. The literary artifacts produced are just pointers to them. They're not effective in and of themselves. The beauty is in applying them to the wonderful koan that is each and every one of our lives. When we cut through the obstructions, we can see our original nature very clearly. Things open up in a way that would have seemed impossible before. And then we can truly begin to appreciate our lives. And it brings great joy. If you want to know the undying person in the hut, don't separate from the skin bag you're in now. <laughs> have to you know, laugh every time because um, it's not exactly the least coarse epithet for, <laughs> for our corporeal self. But you know, this undying person in the hut is right before you. When we narrate this poem, we become one with Sekado's bones and marrow. We like to construct a self and weave a narrative to give that self life, but the life that we create is often separate from the direct experience that's always in front of us. When we tell those stories, it's important for us to return to the present moment and recognize them for what they are, their stories. In this way, we can avoid being carried off in the eddies of delusive thoughts that can rob us of clarity. 
as I mentioned before, skin bag is a pretty coarse epithet for our body, but then again, it's really not, not very much more than that. We spend a lot of time trying to define ourselves by how we look, how we dress, how we present our faces to the world. Um, but in the end, you know, the skin bag is just a seat of our senses. And with that, we can focus our attention on this moment, here and now. When we do, we can appreciate our, our true body. We can breathe with the wind, we can cry with the rain, and we can even shine radiantly with the stars. And here we're, we're at home, you know, we're at home. Thank you. So that was, um, again, I want to stress the work born of a lot of different folks who were involved in Commit to Sit. We'd love to have you come join the conversation. Um, but I think just a wonderful poem. And as I had mentioned before, it really just scratches the surface. Um, the conversation that we've had the opportunity to talk today. And uh, I think um, I learn more every time. <laughs> I have the, uh, the opportunity to, to read it, and I appreciate you taking the walk, too. Um, thanks very much. If there are any questions, I'd be happy to defer them to, to Mark, probably. <laughs> you mean because I suggested it? But That's right. I think, you did a, I think you did a just a sensational job through Commit to Sit, but also this morning. Uh, she can distilling so many ideas and and uh, really fermenting them into a, a wonderful uh, presentation uh, that will um, it's going to last with me for a while. Thank you so much. It's also thank you, Michael. Really wonderful. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I hope everyone has a, a wonderful rest of their weekend. And I know Vanessa and I are planning to, to head over and see David this morning. So we'll be sure to say hello from all of you as well, as we've been doing over the past weeks. Thank you so much for everything you do. <laughs>